0: We'll take your Bibles and uh, turn back to the book of Romans, and uh, we are going to continue our study this morning of Romans chapter 10. And uh, just wanted to let you know, because uh, we didn't do a good job of telling you ahead of time so you could be praying for us, but uh, Friday night and all day yesterday, uh, we met together as pastors and elders uh, for our annual um, elders retreat um, And uh, we just hunker down in one of the homes of the elders and uh, spend some time praying together and seeking the Lord's face and just uh, humbling ourselves before him and seeking his wisdom, his direction for the life of our church, the future of our church. And so uh, God gave us a really sweet time together. Uh, I guess that's probably the first thing I would want to report to you, that by the grace of God, you have a very unified uh, leadership team. And uh, that is a, a a precious gift from the Lord that we should never take for granted. And uh, so God has shined upon us as a church uh, to give us a group of men that, uh, while we're all sinful uh, and we do all have our own uh, ambitions and agendas, uh, we, that's true of all of us, right, as sinful human beings, but to lay those things aside and just come before the Lord and say, God, we want your we want to be ambitious about what you're ambitious about. We want to have your agenda, whatever that is, and, um, you know, there's a, a verse in, I think it's Psalm 133 that talks about how, how beautiful a thing it is when brothers dwell together in harmony, and uh, we had a very harmonious time together, talking, praying, discussing, making decisions, and um, uh, I cannot tell you what a blessing it is for me personally uh, to be a part of a a leadership team that is so uh, like-minded doctrinally and philosophically. Uh, it makes my life so much easier. <laughs> and, uh, but I tell you what, if you have not known the difference, um, that some of you have something to compare to. Uh, you've been in other uh, churches maybe where the leadership wasn't as united. And uh, it, it showed, you could tell. And um, it really, in, in, at, the, at the end of the day, uh, negatively impacts the life of a church. And so, um, again, I just wanted to let you know that's uh, what continues to be probably my greatest uh, blessing, the thing I'm most thankful for, for our leadership team. And uh, we uh, just uh, felt like we had a very productive time. We didn't get bogged down at any one point uh, kind of stuck spinning our wheels on anything, uh, but we're able to just kind of keep motoring ahead and knocking off some of these items that we needed to talk about and, and, and make some decisions for. And obviously, uh, our annual meeting is coming up in January. That's typically when we unveil any kind of new ideas or initiatives and things like that. But um, we are uh, probably just excited about continuing the uh, what's been um, uh, an unintended, in some ways, Um, emphasis this last year on evangelism, and uh, we were talking about how that just seems to be uh, hopefully uh, becoming more a part of our DNA and who we are, and um, that uh, the book of Romans has helped us, I think, probably more than anything, because this book is all about the gospel, and it just lends itself every week for us to talk about the gospel and talk about what are we doing about it, and who are we telling about it, And, uh, and so once again, this This morning, uh, we are going to be exposed to some truth that's going to have an evangelistic flair or flavor to it or emphasis, and you're going to feel some heat coming under the bottom of your chair this morning as far as, uh, you know, we're all going to be on the hot seat about, hey, we've got this gospel. We know the gospel by the grace of God. What are we doing about it? And there's a world out there, right, that needs to hear it. And uh, so hopefully you'll be stirred up by that. But anyway, all that to say, thank you. For those of you that did know, you were aware that we were away uh, as, as elders and, and pastors. Um, uh, you prayed for us and we really, really coveted those prayers and feel like God answered uh, those prayers uh, for us. And stay tuned for more details about uh, some new ideas and thoughts that we have uh, for the future of our church. Well, you're there in Romans, Romans chapter 10. Let's look at verses 14 through 21. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 13. Today, we're gonna finish up this chapter looking at verses 14 to 21. Paul writes here, "'How then will they call on him "'in whom they have not believed? "'How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? "'And how will they hear without a preacher?' "'How will they preach unless they're sent?' Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, Surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, will I anger you? And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Father, we are so grateful for this letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, the churches there in in Rome, and we're thankful that your spirit inspired him to write these words and to preserve it for us so that we could have it to study and to learn from and to uh, go to school on, if you will, and so, Lord, we're here once again uh, to uh, listen to you speak to us, and I pray that we would understand what's happening right now. It's it, it, This is not just the words of a man. These are your very words, which we do well to hear and to heed, and so, Lord, would you grant us grace, Lord, to be... Uh, attentive hearers and diligent doers, that we would not uh, deceive ourselves thinking that hearing is just taking in information without ever putting it into practice. May this message not just go in one ear and out the other, but Lord, may it sink deep down into our hearts and uh, come out in the way we live our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this month's... uh, edition of Christianity Today, which is one of the periodicals that I get on a regular basis and try to work through, Um, there is a a testimony of a Jewish convert that I thought was very timely in light of where we're at right now in our study of Romans. And I wanted to read it to you this morning because uh, in hopes that it will encourage your heart as much as it did mine. And it's going to take a few minutes, and so just settle in there and uh, enjoy uh, hearing this story uh, titled Crossing the Road to Christ. This is uh, by a man named Dickon Eberhart, And he said this, I grew up in the, uh, in the Episcopal Church, but in my high teens and young 20s, I drifted at seminary in Berkeley, California. That should all, all automatically raise concerns, right? Uh, There's a seminary in Berkeley, California, and what would they teach, right? During the 1970s, he said, a time and a place where anything you wanted went, I created my own religion. I called it Godianity. Certainly, I believed in the existence of God, hence the name of my religion. But I didn't know much about the Son of God, fellow, and the little I did know seemed impossibly weird. God and I were pals, we talked to one another like the creatives we were, discussing my new books. I was sure, in fact, that he had dictated the final 60 pages of one of my novels, Paradise, during an 18-hour burst of ecstatic writing. Then something happened. I married a Jew. She was an atheist, and her family was mostly secular. My wife's atheism and my Godianity. Coexisted comfortably enough since my godianity was a private credulity that didn't war against anything else, not even against unbelief. At any rate, our passionate love triumphed over any possible squabble in the holy zone. Then my wife became pregnant. Nine months later, our first daughter squirmed in her mother's arms. Here's the sudden realization of an atheist. Such a perfect, urgent, demanding, and beautiful creature must be the gift of God, not the product of some random swirl of atoms. How many is that the testimony of, right? That it was when they had a baby that everything changed in how they viewed God and related to God. He said, My wife's atheism bit the dust. (laughs) Her new God belief was Jewish, and it grew stronger theologically as the years passed. My Gadianity should have taken notice. Listen up, it ought to have heard you're in trouble, too. <laughs> that trouble came five years later. Our daughter and I were swinging in a hammock under a tree on a windy day. On the strength of my doctorate, I had an administrative and teaching position at a seminary, and my Gaudianity pal was helping me write another novel. Normally an eager chatterer, our daughter fell silent and then said, quote, "Daddy, I know there's a God." I was enchanted. How, sweetie? She pointed at the tree and its leaves. You can't see God. He's like the wind. You can't see the wind, but the wind makes the leaves move. You can't see God, but you know he's there because he makes the people move like the leaves. Wow. Out of the mouth of babes, right? He goes on, he says, my heart swelled with love for this perceptive child, but then she crushed me. Daddy, she continued, what do we believe? Really? What she was asking was, this way, really, what what she was asking was, mommy's kind of Jewish, you're kind of Christian, so what am I? And despite my three advanced religious degrees and seminary employment, I couldn't answer. In that instant, I shucked my godianity. Right away, my wife and I retreated into an urgent executive session. She was a Jew who was no longer an atheist. By Jewish mandate, since our children's mother was a Jew, all of them, there would be four in total, were Jews too. I adored the Old Testament, that very human story of our very human ancestors with their striving, falling, picking up, and striving all over again. As for the New Testament, I just didn't get it. Resolved, we shall raise our children as Jews. And we did, as Reformed Jews. Yet I still teetered on an even ground, conscious of being an outsider. I provided support and answered questions. I was an academic, after all. And I led our Shabbat Friday evening prayers and our Passover seders. But still, I was me and they were they. Then something else happened. During services on the eve of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, God spoke to me quote, if you should desire to come to me, my door is open to you. I looked toward my wife and our four children. None of them had heard this invitation. Had my wife glanced at me just then, she would have noticed that my face was on fire. Right away, I knew I needed to become a Jew myself, and three years later, my conversion was complete. A quarter century passed, as it does. 25 years, he said, we moved to the main coast, The children grew in Judaism and began going off on their own. For some time, my wife and I had noticed something. While Reformed Judaism respects Torah, many Reformed Jews themselves were selective in their adherence to its strictures. But we objected. We wanted a faith that wasn't in the habit of accommodating itself to the surrounding culture. By coincidence, or was it design, a new Orthodox rabbi came to town. My wife and I befriended him and his family, occasionally attending his shul, the Orthodox name for synagogue. We began experimenting with the three Torah-based requirements for Jewish ritual life, kosher cooking, Sabbath observance, and family purity. Across our rural road, there happened to be a small Baptist church. Some of our neighbors had invited us to visit in case we Jews should ever want to know more about Christ. We realized that, oddly, these neighbors seemed concerned for our souls. We kept up our experiment with Jewish strictness for another year or so, even though it depended, or excuse me, even though it deepened the isolation between us and our larger community. But gradually, we drifted away. We tried attending a local non-affiliated synagogue, one, one with only a cantor, no rabbi. Eventually, we stopped going altogether. We were lost. More than a year later, desperate for direction, I crossed the road to that small Baptist church one Sunday morning. That day, the pastor was preaching from 1 Timothy. I was astonished to hear a Baptist preacher using Old Testament references within his message and with accurate Hebrew nuance. The pastor and I began meeting each week, sometimes for two or three hours at a time, and my wife frequented the woman's Bible study. She and I began devouring book after book, faster and faster, thrilled by each new discovery of seemingly impossible truths that were actually true. In the secular worlds we inhabited, two opposite things couldn't be the same. Water is not fire, stone is not air, yet Christianity taught that two opposite things were the same. Jesus Christ was entirely human and entirely divine at the same time. How does that work? Even as a Jew, I knew the passion story, but I crossed the road once it occurred to me that maybe, just maybe, that story might be real and if it were, then everything would need to change. Our Torah-based lives would be as dead and ineffectual as Godianity. Instead, we would give our souls to the personal love of the incarnation, the God-man who dwelt among us. We realized that the Old Testament begged for the climax of the, climax of the New Testament. It took nine months an appropriate duration for rebirth before I committed myself to Jesus. My wife did the same three months later on our anniversary, a beautiful gift. Our younger two children followed soon thereafter. And he closes with this paragraph. When God spoke to me in the synagogue all those years ago, inviting me through his open doorway, I had assumed he was summoning me into Judaism. Little did I know he was actually calling me to Christ. Isn't that a great story? And there was one paragraph that jumped out at me when I first read this, and it was this one. And maybe the one paragraph that would be the most easily just breezed over is not um, as important as the others or as eloquent as the others but it simply said this, across our rural road, there happened to be a small Baptist church. Some of our neighbors had invited us to visit in case we Jews should ever want to know more about Christ. We realized that oddly, these neighbors seemed concerned for our souls. And I began to ask myself, would our church a little Bible church on Freeport Drive ever be included in someone's testimony? Would I be ever included in somebody's testimony? Would you ever be included? Did you know of anybody who, who you're included? You're, you're a part of their story of how they came to know Jesus Christ. God used you to lead them to Christ. Are, are you a part of anybody's testimony? I know we have people, right, who are part of our testimony. It might be our parents, it might be uh, 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 our brother or sister, it might be our child, our kid, it might be a coworker or a classmate or a relative, um, someone, right? God used someone to witness to you. The other question I was asking myself is, could anyone say about me, and I'll just include all of us, okay, so I'm not the only one feeling guilty and convicted, okay, this morning. Um, Could could, could anyone say about us that we as a church or that we as a neighbor seem to concern for their souls? Is there anybody out there, outside the four walls of this church, that we've interacted with and they could have that same realization. You know, they they seem concerned for my soul. As someone whose heart was greatly concerned for the souls of his fellow Jews, Paul would have rejoiced in hearing this testimony. As should we. And I think if Paul were still alive today, he would have a special place in his heart for gospel ministries targeting Jews, for example, like Jews for Jesus. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that ministry. It's been around for years, Uh, Jews for Jesus. um, It's a worldwide missionary organization that focuses on evangelizing Jewish people, helping them understand uh, that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Jewish people. I was just kind of exploring their website this week and This is their mission. This is their mission statement of Jews for Jesus. Our mission, we relentlessly pursue God's plan for the salvation of the Jewish people. We're passionate and dedicated to sharing the hope we found in Jesus the Messiah with our fellow Jewish people. But it's not only our passion, it's what God has clearly stated that he intends to accomplish. God's plan will result in the salvation of Jewish people. And if you've been listening to the messages here in Romans 9, 10, and maybe even sneaking a peek at chapter 11 as we move forward, uh, you know that there is no other place in God's word that more clearly explains God's plan for the salvation of the Jews than Romans 9, 10, and 11. These three chapters serve a very unique role, not just in the book of Romans, but really in the entire Bible, but Paul was giving here a much-needed clarification of how Jews and Gentiles fit together in God's all overall plan of salvation, and Paul knew after all that he had said up to this point in this letter, chapters 1 through 8, mentioning Jews and Gentiles and God's plan of salvation, and, and yet uh, in light of the fact that that uh, it seemed like the Jews were just kind of punting Jesus and punting the gospel and rejecting all that. So so what's up with the Jews? What's up with Israel? I mean, if they are God's chosen people, then, then why did the majority of them reject Jesus as their Messiah and still do to this day? Why is the church in our day, right, made up predominantly of Gentile converts, Well, that's the question that Paul set out to answer in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Chapter 9, he focuses on Israel's past and explains why most Jews stumble over Jesus, or I should say chapter 9 is more, that's chapter 10, chapter 9 is more election that God didn't choose every Jew to be saved. Here in chapter 10, it's more Israel's present and why is Jesus such a stumbling block uh, to the Jews, this is why, why have they rejected Christ, and, and then chapter 11, we're going to get to, probably in the new year, uh, Paul's focused on Israel's future, and explains how Jews will embrace Jesus as their Messiah, in the end, during the, the, when Christ returns, when he comes a second time, they'll realize they missed him the first time, but now they're not going to miss him a second time, and they'll get it when he comes back. And that's what we're gonna see in chapter 11. But we're in chapter 10, and really chapter 10 actually starts, or at least the thought, the flow of thought, actually starts back in chapter nine, verse 30. And then all the way through the end of chapter 10, Paul was making it crystal clear that, that Israel was responsible and accountable for her rejection of the gospel. In other words, it's not God's fault for not choosing all the Jews to be saved, but it is the Jews who are at fault for not believing that a person is saved by placing their faith in Christ's work rather than relying on their own good works. And so last week we began looking at chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, and we saw the reasons why Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah and refused to accept the simple message of the gospel that a person is made right with God by relying on what Jesus did rather than relying on what we do. And by the way, Paul's not picking on the Jews here, and nor am I, um, because the rest of us, non-Jews, are exactly the same. In the sense that we tend to seek to establish our own righteousness, or our own goodness, by means of what we do. And that's, by the way, where religion came from to begin with, right? All the man-made religions of the world uh, all focus on what a person needs to do to get right with God or to stay right with God, whether that's to go to confession or pray some special prayers or beat yourself, pierce yourself, do good deeds, donate don't, don't a bunch of money, um, go on some pilgrimage, Again, we mentioned this last week, all religion has done is complicate God's plan of salvation. And it makes salvation way harder than God ever expected it to be or intended it to be. Salvation is simple, so simple that anyone can be saved. You simply have to uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we saw last week in Romans chapter 10, verse 8, but in what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we're preaching. In other words, it's, you don't have to go looking for it. It's, it's like staring you in the face, okay? It's not some hidden truth. God put it out there, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or ashamed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. And then this is where we ended, verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, anyone who wants to be saved, who calls on the name of the Lord, can be saved. But that doesn't mean everyone will be saved. The only people who will be rescued from sin, death, and hell are those who hear the good news of salvation and they, and they submit to it or they heed it or they take it to heart. So in order for a person to be saved, they, someone, someone needs to share the gospel with them, and they need to submit their lives or commit their lives to it. And that's essentially what Paul was saying in verses 14 through 21. And I've broken these verses into two sections. Verses 14 and 15 is the need to herald the gospel. And verses 16 through 21 is the need to heed the gospel. And you probably noticed when I read this that Paul used a series of rhetorical questions, kind of one right after the other, as he continued to explain why the Jews rejected the righteousness that God offers through faith alone in Christ alone. And, and yet in the midst of this explanation of Israel's rejection of Christ, we find one of the clearest, most compelling calls to evangelism and missions found anywhere in the scriptures, And I'm referring to verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? This is the heartbeat of Christian missions. This is why we pray for missionaries. This is why we send missionaries. This is why we support missionaries. And it's easy to forget when you're wading through the book of Romans that it's essentially a missionary support letter disguised as a doctrinal dissertation of the gospel. And you may remember at the beginning of our study a year or so ago, I don't lost track now. I mentioned to you that Paul wrote this letter to inform the believers in Rome that he was coming to visit them, but he wasn't wanting to put down roots there. He was just passing through or planning to pass through because his ultimate goal was to take the gospel to where? Remember? Spain which at that point was the ends of the earth, right? Acts 1-8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth are the ends of the earth. Well, that was where Paul was going. His focus was on the unreached people groups of Spain. And so he communicates that at the beginning of the letter, Romans chapter 1, verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have Often planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so he starts the letter saying that, but listen to how he ends the letter, Romans 15. Verse 22, for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, in other words, I've evangelized Asia Minor, and now I'm coming to Rome. He says, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first Enjoyed your company for a while. So, in Paul's mind, Rome, the capital city of the known world at the time, was the obvious launch point for the gospel into Spain, much like Antioch served as the base of operation for his ministry in Asia Minor. So, Rome was going to be the new Antioch in, in Paul's mind. And yet, he hadn't been able to get there yet. And so, He wanted to write them a letter and introduce himself to the believers there. But even more importantly, he wanted to give them a summary of the message of hope that he was committed to sharing with the world, the ends of the earth, in hopes that they would partner with him in his future missionary endeavors through their prayers and material resources. And so this is really the heart of his appeal in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. And again, he used four consecutive rhetorical questions here to emphasize the necessity of evangelism and the responsibility that every Christian has to share the good news of salvation with those who have yet to hear it. And by the way, we need to keep these truths balanced out because, again, Romans 9 was all about God's sovereignty and salvation, right? Well, here in chapter 10, we find that God's sovereignty and salvation does not negate man's responsibility, which includes both believing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. And I've said this before, but God has sovereignly ordained who will be saved. But at the same time, he has also ordained the means by which they will be saved, which is the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and what? Hearing the word of truth. So it's not like God chooses people to be saved and before the foundation of the earth and just goes around zapping them. No, there's a method that he uses, and it's the same method for every one of us, and that is we have to hear the message of the gospel, we have to hear the good news of salvation, we need to hear about God's plan of salvation. You may have heard the story, but when William Carey, who we know is the father of modern missions, first applied to his church leaders um, or church board uh, there in England, um, he wanted to be sent to India as a missionary, and one of the elders in the church said to him, he said this, quote, when God chooses to save the heathen in India, he'll do so without your help. I don't know how that guy got to be an elder, but... Anyway, that's what he said, as the story goes. In other words, hey, William, just just settle down, pal, okay? And you're all gung-ho to get to India to reach these people that have never heard the gospel. Just, Just relax, okay? God doesn't need you to do that. And Kerry's probably in his mind thinking, well, how is he gonna do it then? He's not just gonna zap a bunch of people He's he's gonna use missionaries. He's gonna use evangelists. And so fortunately, that didn't deter Kerry because he knew that the salvation of lost people required a series of successive steps starting with people being sent out as missionaries and ending with people being saved. And again, what's the use if salvation through faith in Christ is so accessible and available to all, whoever will call the name of the Lord will be saved, if they never hear about it. People can't embrace the gospel unless they've heard a clear presentation of the gospel. They can't call out in faith for God to save them if they don't know how God saves. And they can't know how God saves if no one tells them how God saves. So calling requires believing. Believing requires hearing. Hearing requires preaching. And preaching requires sending. And this is where we come in as a church and as Christians. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? That word for preach or preach... Preacher is Kiruso, or Kirux in the Greek, which means to herald, to, to announce. And, and by the way, back then they didn't have media per se. It's definitely not social media. And, and so if you needed to get a message to someone, there was only one way to do it. You find somebody, you tell them the message, and say, go tell those people. And so the herald would show up in town and he'd get up in the, you know, get up on whatever the fountain in the in the town i'm just thinking of the center of town there and he'd get up and he'd open up his scroll and he'd read he he'd read the announcement he was the herald i want to make sure that we all know here that this is not just a reference to missionaries and pastors those with the gift of evangelism or who have been called specifically to full-time vocational ministry. I think this verse or this principle here applies to every Christian. We are all God's messengers. We are all God's ambassadors. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 18. Now all these are are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's talking to the church in Corinth. He's not talking to a pastor's conference or some missionary conference, missionary society. No, he's, he's just talking to the members of the church in Corinth. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, what, you remember? Ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what is your responsibility when it comes to heralding the message, reaching lost people? Is it just um, sitting comfortably in your home in the safety and comfort of your own home and praying and, and uh, sending that monthly check to the missionary? Or do you see your errands your job, your classes, your workouts, your daily movings about as opportunities to share the gospel with unbelievers you're a missionary I'm a missionary we're all missionaries in that sense and I love what Paul went on to say here, he said in verse 15, just as, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That was a quote from Isaiah 52.7, and Isaiah was originally in that passage talking about those messengers who would announce to Judah that God had ended their exile in Babylon and they would be allowed to return to Jerusalem, and that was good news. At the same time, we know it was a reference to those messengers who would spread the good news of Christ's second coming and the redemption of the Jews and their return to Israel. As you know, Israel has been dispersed throughout the the nations. And one day, when Christ returns, they're all gonna come back to their homeland and embrace their Messiah. Again, stay tuned for more details about that. That doesn't mean every Jewish person will be saved but uh, there's definitely going to be a revival in the nation of Israel in the end so Paul took that verse from Isaiah and he applied it here to to those of us who faithfully proclaim the good news of the gospel he says man if you're out there telling people about Jesus you got beautiful feet you got good looking feet I think it's interesting you know feet are kind of weird and like people are like oh, I don't want to see that don't show me your feet or you're real self-conscious about your feet, and but then there's foot models, right, that have beautiful feet, and they're like, hey, they're they're making big bucks, they're like modeling those shoes or whatever. The point is, what did God give us feet for? To get around, right? Not to to glam glamorize our feet, right? Um. He gave us feet to go. To get places. And not to get to meddling here, but I was thinking of some questions to ask ourselves. I mean, do you do you care more about your shoes or your soul or, or souls, <laughs> right? I mean, come on, there, let's face it, there, there's there's lots of shoe stores out there in the world for a reason, right? Because people like shoes, they like boots. You know, you might be a guy, and You man, you like your boots, man, you got this pair of boots and you just love this pair of boots or... Or maybe this, ladies, you, you love to go get that pedicure, right? Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But what gets you more excited? When you get a new pair of shoes, when you get those, you know, your toenails all painted up pretty, ladies, is that, is that I mean, you get excited about that or, or do you get excited when you get to share the gospel? How about combine the two? How about share the gospel with the, the person that's giving you your pedicure or with the boot salesman at Cavenders, or, you know, combine them. I'll never forget reading um, the story of Hudson Taylor. I think it was his Hudson Taylor Spiritual Secret. I think that's where I read it originally. Um, He was a pioneer missionary to China and he shared an extremely convicting conversation that he had with a new convert and uh, after receiving the gospel, this new convert asked him, he said, hey, how long have you known about this good news in England? Because Hudson had come from England to, to share the good news in, in China, to be a missionary to China. And, and Taylor was embarrassed and ashamed. And so he kind of vaguely replied, well, it's been a, several hundred years. And the man was astonished and he said, what? Several hundred years? You, you, you've known about Jesus that long and you've only now come to tell us? And then he said this, he said, my father sought the truth for more than 20 years and died without finding it. Why did you not come sooner? And again, I had to ask myself the question. You might want to ask yourself the question, is there anybody that we associate with who could say that to us? Like, hey, you knew this and you didn't tell me? Or why did it take you this long to tell me? I've known you for how many years? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of salvation. So this is the first thing that Paul talks about here is the need to herald the gospel. The need to herald the gospel. And we could just say, let's close in prayer. There's enough there to walk away feeling plenty convicted, wouldn't you agree? (laughs) But let's look at the second section here, the need to heed the gospel the need to heed the gospel. Notice verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. And this is, uh, I think, a very helpful balance here, especially in light of how easy believism has become the norm in so many churches today. And what I mean by that is, hey, I'm a Christian because I had this experience and I prayed this prayer and I signed this card and I walked this aisle and I went, I got baptized and yeah, I just, the preacher said, all I had to do is accept Jesus and I did and now I'm a Christian and, but were, if you knew the person and you knew their lifestyle, like, well, I would have never known that based on how you're living your life. Um, So this, I think, is a reminder here that the gospel is not simply a gracious invitation to believe, but a divine command to believe and what? Obey. To believe and obey. We looked at this last week. Um, Paul describes the gospel as the obedience of faith. Twice. In Romans 1, uh, Romans 16, even in Romans chapter six, verse 17, he says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So the idea of is is commitment. There needs to be a commitment of our lives that, that leads to obedience. Uh, Acts chapter six, Acts chapter six, verse seven Acts chapter six, verse seven says, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Second Thessalonians, another familiar passage talking about the judgment to come. In Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse seven, talking about the return of Christ and how God will repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He didn't say believe the gospel, he said obey the gospel. And of course, we said last week, John three thirty six kind of helps us out there. He who believes in the Son shall have life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Those terms, believe and obey, are interchangeable. So I think this is good to, to, to balance this out here, that while salvation is simple, don't, don't let the pendulum swing into this easy believism where, yeah, all you gotta do is believe some facts about Jesus and you're good to go. You got your get out of hell free card and uh, just keep going down the road like you always have. No, that's not Christianity. But notice he says here, uh, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And again, this is a quote from Isaiah 53, 1, and if you know Isaiah 53, right, that's the classic Description of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. So he was prophesying about how Christ would die in the place of sinners, how God was pleased to crush his innocent son and pour his wrath out on him so we could be forgiven. In fact, Jesus quoted the same verse, Isaiah 53 1, um, in John chapter 12, to explain why the Jews failed to believe the good news of salvation. When it was heralded and, and announced at his first coming, John chapter twelve, verse thirty-seven. But though he had performed so many signs before him, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke: "Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?" For this reason, they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, "He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, and that they would not see with their, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and heal them." and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of them. Very clearly, Jesus says, hey, Isaiah was ta- had seen me and he was talking about me. And we come to verse 17, which is a very familiar verse. We, we all know. Faith comes, it's kind of a summary statement. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, probably better understood as the word about Christ. In other words, God's word explains the plan of salvation through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so God uses the truth about who Christ is and what Christ has done to produce faith in Christ. Second Timothy 3.15 Paul said to Timothy, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, i.e. the scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So if anybody's going to come to know Christ, it's going to be through hearing the message about Christ, which is contained in this thing right here. So Paul says, hey, uh, they did not all heed. They didn't all repent and believe. So he says, okay, well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Verse 18, surely they have never heard, have they? Paul's anticipating someone asking, well, if the reason why the Jews didn't believe the gospel is because maybe, maybe they never really heard the gospel. And uh, he goes on to quote from Psalm 19.4. Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Interesting, David in Psalm 19.4 was describing how God uses uh, creation to declare his glory to the entire world. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the mountains, the rivers, right? They're all screaming that there's a God. This is a reference to general revelation and so consequently, we are all without excuse. And that's what Paul said in Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And that includes everybody, not just Gentiles. It includes Jews, all of us, all mankind. And, uh, and by the way, David went on in Psalm 19 to describe how God not only has revealed himself through creation, but also he's revealed himself through his word. So you've got general revelation, you've got special revelation, and Israel had been exposed to both. And so they had ample opportunity to to hear and respond to God. And it wasn't a lack of hearing. That wasn't the problem. It was a lack of heeding. And so he submits another possible reason, but I say, surely, Israel did not know, did they? So maybe they heard it, but they maybe didn't understand it. Maybe their unbelief, Jewish unbelief, is based on just a lack of knowledge. And... He did say back in verse three, well, verse two, uh, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So it does sound like maybe they were clueless. He calls them ignorant. But notice what Paul says in answer to that. First, Moses, this is in verse 19, says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding, will I anger you? So he quotes uh, Deuteronomy 32, 21 here, which was uh, the final message that Moses gave to the nation of Israel before he died, before they entered the promised land. And he said that because, God had, or because they had made God jealous by worshiping idols or false gods, that he would make them jealous by welcoming the idolatrous Gentiles to be part of his chosen people, chapter eleven, verse eleven, he says again, "I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall; did they? May it never be! But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous." So God intends to use his gracious inclusion of the Gentiles to draw Israel back to himself. And then he quotes Isaiah, verse 20. He goes back to quoting Isaiah. Isaiah is very bold and says, "'I was found by those who did not seek me. "'I became manifest to those who did not ask for me.'" Again, the Gentiles didn't seek God. They were content to continue in their idolatry, their pagan practices, their pursuit of immorality, and yet God in his mercy, sovereignly chose to include them in his plan of salvation. He said that back in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. In other words, God brought them to faith in Christ. We don't have time to read these uh, parables, but just write down Matthew 21, 33 to 43. Matthew 21, 33 to 43, and Matthew 22, 1 through 10. And both of those parables clearly explain what in the world is going on with the Jews and the Gentiles. And why God came to present himself in Christ to the Jews. They rejected him. And so he said, fine, I'm going to go pursue a relationship with the Gentiles. Um, Again, those two parables are classics in explaining this. Maybe we'll have time to look at those uh, in the future. But the point is, the Jews' rejection of the gospel is not because they haven't heard it. It's not because they didn't understand it. It's because they were and still are stubborn and unwilling to repent. Notice what he says at the end, this last verse. But as for Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. They're not just ignorant, they're obstinate, they're disobedient. And this is a quote from Isaiah 65 two, where Isaiah portrayed God as standing all day long with outstretched arms, begging the nation of Israel to come to him, but they refuse to repent. They refuse to believe. If you remember, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, made that triumphant entry. And uh, while he was being praised by so many of the Jews, he knew that in a, five days later, in less than a week, the majority of those who were praising him were gonna be crucifying him. And remember what he said? This is Matthew 23, 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. So with this barrage of of quotes from the Old Testament, Paul nailed the coffin shut, if you will, that, that regardless of God's sovereign choice of who's saved, Israel's rejection of Christ is by her own choice. I started by reading that testimony of one Jew's journey to faith in Christ If we had time, I'd read you another one, but I think you're familiar enough with the story to not have to read it. But I'm referring to the powerful testimony of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. And uh, this dad had two sons, and one was the wild child and wanted to run off and sow his wild oats, and so he arrogantly asked for his inheritance ahead of time and he went off and blew it all in in reckless living. God brought him to the end of himself and he recognized, I've got no other choice but to go back home. And I'm gonna humble myself before my dad and maybe he'll take me back as a slave. And uh, we know as he came up over that hill and his father saw him, apparently his dad would go out regularly to look for a son, as any parent with a wayward child does, prayerfully begging the Lord to soften their heart and bring them back home. And they're, you're, you're watching, you're waiting the whole time, hoping. And so when that wayward young man came up over the horizon, his dad took off running out after him. And uh, of course, he embraced him and Forgave him through a party. And uh, we love that story because that's the story of all of us, right? A prodigal person. Uh, it's also the story of Israel. That they were a prodigal people, but they were probably better represented in the other son. Remember the other guy? The, the good son? the self-righteous, dutiful son who stayed home and dutifully served his dad and always did the right thing and said the right thing. And, And you remember when he came home from the fields after a long day of work and he saw the party, he asked them, hey, what's up? And they said, hey, your brother's come home and your dad's killed the fatted calf and he's throwing him a party like, We've never seen on this property ever before. And and instead of immediately rejoicing and running to get to that party and find his brother and embrace him and say, bro, I've been praying for you. I'm so happy, Ah, man, that you're home. And man, I've missed you and I love you. And what did he do? He stayed out there in the backyard, if you will, and pouted. He was jealous. In fact, he rebuked his dad. Hey, I, your your son goes off and do, your son goes off and does all this, and 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 you kill the fatted calf and you haven't even. I mean, I'm faithfully serving, and you give me a little goat. You give me a little goat. And he was extremely angry. And you remember. What he said, I love this interaction with the dad. It's maybe even more precious than, than how he reacted to the first son. He said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. In other words, son, son, Come on, let's, come on in. You need to come into the parties. He's reaching out. In the same way he was reaching out to the the wayward son, here he is reaching out to the, the jealous son. And by the way, that whole story was all about this. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives and eats with them. They were self-righteous, critical, judgmental. And yet that father loved that self-righteous, critical, judgmental son just as much as he loved the immoral, ungodly, unrighteous son. Which one of those two guys represents you, describes you, either now or maybe what you were like before you came to Christ? All I know is we don't want to be that guy that second guy who sits outside with our arms crossed saying, how could he? How could you? Listen, God is lovingly and graciously reaching out to you this morning with open arms, outstretched arms, saying, come home. Come home. Don't be disobedient. Don't be obstinate. Don't be stubborn. Submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this message of the book of Romans. It's so helpful for us in so many levels. Lord, first of all, I wanna pray for anyone here who is a prodigal person. They've walked away from you. They've wandered away from you. Uh, they they don't have a relationship with you right now, but they know, they know that uh, they need to repent, and they need to come home. And I pray that you would grant them genuine repentance, not just worldly sorrow about where they're at and the consequences of their sin, but godly sorrow that would lead to repentance and genuine commitment and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord. I pray we would never be that older brother as those that you've been so good to and we have the truth of your word and that we would sit here and look down our noses at ungodly people in the world and what they're doing or not doing and that we would have a burden for the for the, for lost people and just we would remember they're just being lost that's what lost people do that's what unbelievers do and that you would give us a burden and an increased concern for their souls. And that you would um, give us opportunities, Lord, to be your heralds this week, to tell them the good news of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.